Well, let's, uh, let's bow again. Father, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you again for the privilege we have to gather together to worship you, to uh, praise your name, to declare your excellencies. Thank you. And Father, I pray as we come to your word that you would grant us wisdom, understanding, so that we might respond as you desire, so that you'd be greatly glorified. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I was preparing for this message, it just struck me, and if you've read the verses we're going to look at, uh, how amazing uh, this passage is, how wonderful it is, how uh, life-changing it is. If you truly understand it, if you truly allow it to dwell in your hearts and minds, uh, we live in a world that is so full of corruption and sin and wickedness. And we, uh, before we came to Christ, we're, we're in that world. We partook of that. And now that we've uh, come to Christ, uh, we are uh, righteous because of Jesus, but yet we still fail. We still sin. But we are those who confess our sins. We know that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But yet we're not there yet. The Apostle Paul said that if Jesus is for this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. And yes, he is for this life, but not for this life only. If he was, we would we, we all of all men to be pitied. But the reality is there's more than this. And because of what God has done through reconciling us to himself, uh, we will have a glorious, as we will see, eternity with the Lord. We're continuing our look in the book of Colossians, uh, and the question we want to ask today of this message and this passage is, do we have an accurate view of who Jesus is? We can get our view skewed at times concerning who our Savior is. We can uh, dull him down in our minds in a sense. We can start to worry and fear and not see him rightly, but his word is that which renews our hearts and minds and enables us to see clearly uh, through the fog of our own uh, wisdom and the world's temptations and the devil's temptations. Now, we're going to see that he is the God who reconciles. The God who reconciles. Now, unfortunately, because of sin, we all understand about relationships where if there is a situation, a difficulty, whatever it might be, there could be what are called, uh, uh, there could be difficulties where there's no reconciliation, where the relationship is broken. We all understand on a human standpoint, but what a joy when that relationship is reconciled. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing while under house arrest. Uh, he is in Rome probably around 62 AD. And although he had never personally visited Colossae, he had heard uh, of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the saints from Epaphras, or from, um, who had come and, uh, been concerned about them. He had traveled 1,600 miles and shared with the Apostle Paul this faith in, in the Lord Jesus and love, but yet there were some concerns. We see in chapter 2, verse 4, that false teachers were attempting to delude them with persuasive arguments. You know, most believers don't get taken by the, by the obvious uh, falsehoods, but they're believers who get deluded by persuasive arguments. And there are persuasive arguments out there from those who do not know the Lord, from those who are evil. And back here, they were trying to delude these Colossians. Now, it's clear that these arguments were aimed at the Colossians' struggle with the flesh. Indeed, in the end of chapter 2, uh, Paul would say, These are matters of which, to be sure, have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion, self-abasement, their treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You can get the help of angels, you can hold your body down, you can treat it badly, you can have a list of do's and don'ts. It does not help you in your dealing with the flesh. The reality is it is only Christ who enables us to walk rightly. And so Paul's um, solution is to turn their hearts and our hearts onto a focus on Christ. And so far in our study, we've seen that Paul and Timothy were brought to their knees 
because of the genuine response of these Colossians to the gospel, they had faith in Jesus Christ and they had a love that was evident for one another. They were truly saved. They had understood the grace of God in truth, the message of the gospel. They had believed in Jesus and they had bore real fruit. Uh, They had a genuine love in the Spirit. And this brought Paul and Timothy to their knees. And in their prayer, in Paul and Timothy's prayer, was also that they would be able to walk in a manner uh, worthy. And how do they do that? We saw so clearly that it is when our hearts are filled with the knowledge of his will from his word, when we are yielded to that, we will walk in a manner worthy, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks for this great salvation we have in Jesus Christ. When God's word is overflowing in our hearts, when his will is manifest in our hearts through his word, we're going to manifest these responses. And then the Apostle Paul began to address the false teaching head-on, by sharing a clear view of who Jesus truly is. And when we see him rightly, then we see him as the only solution to all of our spiritual difficulties and physical difficulties for everything. And we saw that Jesus is God and that he is the supreme Lord of all creation because he created it all. And he created it all for himself. And he is before all things, and he holds all things together. And then we saw, just as he is the supreme Lord over the first creation, he is the supreme Lord, originator, accomplisher of his new creation, the church. And he is the head, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And so with that, we come to our passage, where I believe, again, it's going to give us an accurate view of who Jesus truly is that he is the God who reconciles, who reconciles. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin with verse 19, but I want to back up one verse as we read our passage. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Very important verse. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through whom I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he now he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So then, this tremendous passage, as you, as I read it, you can understand why I am uh, uh, come to this with fear and trembling. There is such a tremendous amount of truth and and uh, important uh, doctrine here, teaching that we need to have in our hearts and minds, that we need to be filled with. We need to be filled with the knowledge of him and his will. And this is so, so important because we can get caught up in all the stuff going around us, whether it's happening to us directly or indirectly, and we need to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. But we need to be fixed on the right Jesus the one from whom God has revealed in Scripture, who is God who took on human flesh, who died for our sins. And so you might remember last time we were together in Colossians, we saw verse 18, he is also the head of the body of the church. That's the new creation. Jesus is the head of the church, and the believers are the body. We are to be in absolute submission to the head, Jesus Christ. And he is the beginning of what? He is the beginning, the source of the church. He is the originating power. It is through Christ. He is the cornerstone in which we are built upon. It is through faith in Christ that we become part of his body, that we become the church. And we see uh, that he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the preeminent one from the dead because It is his resurrection that brings about and assures our resurrections from the dead. 
Jesus being the very source and basis of salvation so that he might come to have first place in everything. And by the way, he's working in my life, he's working in your life to get first place in everything. He deserves it, he is worthy of it, and he is weeding out and renewing us and changing us so that he would be first, that he'd be first. So Jesus Christ is supreme Lord of his of his uh, first creation because he created it all and he is supreme lord of his new creation the church because it is through him that it originates and that we become part of that creation it's through Christ alone now we come to our passage where we have really the answer here of why he should have first place why should he have first place why is it uh, why was it necessary for him to be uh, manifest in this manner as the supreme lord of this uh, new creation, why? Again, look at our passage here. We're going to see, first of all, it's two things, but first of all, because he is God in human flesh. That's the first reason. Back to verse 18. He also is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. That's the originator, the firstborn from the dead. And here we go, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Why? For what reason? Here we go. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Verse 19 starts out with a word for, and in Greek it is the conjunction hati, which speaks of reason or cause. And it's often translated because. And we understand how the term for and because can be interchangeable. I often use this example, take two aspirins for a headache. That's not to get a headache, it's because you have a headache. And so here, he might come to have first place because it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Why is he being exhibited and manifest as the Supreme Lord? He is, but why so? Why is he being manifest to us as the Supreme Lord of his new creation? Because it was the Father's good pleasure. That's the first part. There's two points, we'll see. Because it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now here, as we look at this statement, it was the Father's good pleasure, you might notice that the term word, the word Father is, is italicized. Uh, it's being implied, and the translators are rightly putting that in there to tell you that's who this is speaking of. That's what they're doing. And so here, if you look at the contrast, indeed it makes sense that it is speaking of the Father's good pleasure. Now, this term good pleasure speaks of being well-pleased. You know, if you're a parent and your child does something you want them to do and they do it well, you're well-pleased. They did what you wanted them to do. Whatever it might be, you're well-pleased. Um, when they do things that are pleasing, it's well-pleasing to those who are parents, right? Well, here we see it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. You might remember that when Jesus was baptized, the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am, same word, well-pleased. 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 So then, what was the Father well-pleased with? For all the fullness of to dwell in him. Now you might say, this is speaking of the deity of Christ, and I would say you are correct. But yet the text doesn't say deity, it says fullness. And bad guys would say, well, that's not duty, that's fullness. That's something else, right? Well, they don't go to chapter 2. If you go to chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we see that he clearly relays the same phraseology but adds the word deity. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through, through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principle, that's the ABCs of the world, rather than according to Christ. You see, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ, but the world wants to take you captive with their wisdom and ways, right? Bad guys come along. But notice what he says here. For in him, that's speaking of Christ, all the fullness, same phrase, and then we have the word dwells, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So when we look back at our passage, we interpret it in light of chapter 2 and the rest of Scripture. He is speaking about deity. All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Bodily speaks of a human body. It speaks of a body. 
it can't be any clearer than this, that Jesus of Nazareth is God. That God took on human flesh. You might remember when we looked at verse 15 a few weeks ago, we saw even Jesus claimed to be God. Uh, he said, uh, I am the Father of one, John 10. And uh, the, the Jews took up stones against him. J- Jesus answered, said, I showed you many good works. John 10, 30, 32. From the Father, for which are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, for, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. He said, I am the father of one. He said, before Abraham was, I am. I am. He claimed it. The scripture affirms it very, very throughout. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we know the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Thomas, after Jesus had risen from the dead, said, my Lord and my God. And if you say, well, Jesus was a good man without sin, but he's not God. Well, he wasn't a good man because if he was a good man without sin and he wasn't God, he would have said, don't worship me. But he was God and he allowed Thomas to worship him. He said, my Lord and my God, and he received that worship from Thomas because he is God. Because he is God. We have so many other passages that speak of his deity. I'm not going to give all of them like I did uh, last time. But we know in Hebrews 1.8 of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God. I can't be clearer than that. Philippians chapter 2, who exists in the form of God, right? Very clear. Our passage in front, for chapter 2, verse 9, from, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Can't be clearer than that. Acts 20.28 uh, we see that God, which he purchased the church of God with his own blood. That means he's God. God purchased it with his own blood. Titus chapter 2, 13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the great of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. He's our great God and he's our Savior. Second Peter chapter 1, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. He is God. So clearly, so clearly. And so it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. And if we take a look at this statement, we need to be careful not to misinterpret it. Back in our passage, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Paul is not saying Jesus became deity. He's not saying that. We saw he existed before. From him, all things were created. He's existed forever and ever and ever. He's eternal. He's not saying it was his good pleasure for deity to come upon him or in him in that sense. That's not what he's saying here. Indeed, we know in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We know that. Take, for instance, the conversation we have in Hebrews chapter 10 between the Father and the Son before he took on human flesh. He was God, is God, and and, and always will be God. Turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Hebrews 10, verse 5, and this always fascinates me whenever I read it, as, as all the scripture does, but this particularly here, because we are privy to a conversation before Jesus took on human flesh, for God the Son took on human flesh. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, Therefore when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. How about that? He is God, and he took on a human nature. He wasn't human and took on a divine nature. He was God who took on a human nature. We've got to get that right. The bad guys try to twist it around. They make you think that's what's going on. That's not what's happening. He was God. He took on human flesh. He took on a body. A body says, were prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, I was taking no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the role of this book is written to me to do thy will, O God. Again, above, sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast not desired, nor hast thou take pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. Now, the will was to come die for our sins, to fulfill that, uh, the, to, to, to make the first covenant obsolete by fulfilling all the shadows. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. That's the new covenant. By this will, that's Jesus coming, taking on human flesh and dying for our sins, according to the Father's will, 
He says here, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So then, the Father was well pleased that his Son took on human flesh. Well pleased. Well pleased for him to be still fully divine. Jesus didn't become less God when he took on human flesh. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, although he was God. That's humility for the sake of us doing the Father's will, and he died and was obedient to the point of death on a cross. So then, why is he the supreme Lord of the new creation, the church? First of all, because he, being God, took on human flesh. Because it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And then notice, there's a second reason here. And this is a glorious reason, because it affects us. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all, or because it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Here we have two things the Father was well pleased to happen, identified by two infinitive verbs. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. It was the Father's good pleasure, we see in this context, to reconcile all things to himself. Wow, this is amazing. To dwell and to reconcile. Thus it was the Father's good pleasure, grammatically speaking, also for through Jesus to reconcile all things to himself. For God to take in human flesh was his good pleasure, and for him in that to reconcile everything through his flesh, as we're going to see, reconcile all things to himself. So then the Son is superior not only because of who he is, being God and man, he is superior because of the work he did in the incarnation. Namely, that Jesus, uh, that God through him, Jesus, God the Son, reconciled all things to himself. Let's see that. Wow. Now, don't miss these words, through him. That's speaking of Jesus in context. God the Son who took on human flesh in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. Through him. Through him. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Now, at this point, I think it would be wise for us to understand the term reconcile. In English, it's fairly simple. And For instance, we reconcile our checkbook, right? We put our checkbook figures into a right relationship with the bank figures, right? We reconcile our checkbook. When we reconcile a relationship, simply put, the relationship is mended or put back together. We understand that on a human level. Now, in Greek, there are uh, two words that are most often translated reconcile. One is dialasso and katalasso. Now, dialasso speaks of reconciliation between two parties. Dia, through, right? So it speaks of both parties being involved in that reconciliation. Katalasso is different because it involves the work of one party only to reconcile the two parties together. And what's interesting, our verse here is an intensive form of katalasso, apokatalasso. Sounds like a, like a, like some type of llama or something, right? Um, apokatalasso, which means to reconcile completely by means of one party's work. Isn't that neat? You see, God chose in his sovereignty to allow his word, the New Testament, to come out in the Greek language, which is so vivid in how it describes things. Praise the Lord for that. So then, it's an important distinction, because God, through Jesus, brings about complete reconciliation from his side only. There is nothing we do to be reconciled except to believe in what he has done. That's what we do. We believe in what he has done. Well, how do we do the works of God? Believe, right? We see that. So then, with this in mind, it says that, and then we need to observe some things that are really important. It says uh, that, uh, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Now, if all things need to be reconciled, that means something's wrong, right? Something's wrong if... 
uh, if there's a need to be reconciled, that means all things are in need of reconciliation. That's what it means. We're going to see later on that man, because of sin, is separated from God. It is sin that affects, affects the entire human race, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We see in Isaiah 59, the Lord speaking to his people. He says that they're his people by name, but not by, by relationship, because they had rejected him at that point. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin brings about separation. Later on, we'll see these uh, uh, Colossians were alienated, hostile in mind, and engaged in evil deeds. You see, there's a problem, you see. Uh, Romans chapter 3 sums up the human condition. There are none righteous, not even one. There are none who do good. There are none who understands. There are none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. What about Titus chapter 3? For we once also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And we read Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our transgressions, and we lived and indulged in the lust of our flesh, right? We see that beforehand. Man is separated from God. There is, a, there is no relationship with the living God because of sin. And we are in need of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Romans chapter 1 points out that God's wrath is upon uh uh, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's the pagans. God's wrath is upon sinners who are irreligious. Romans chapter 2 says that God's wrath is upon those religious Jews who didn't know the Lord. Romans 2, and do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance? This is Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. He goes on and says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul, a man who does evil, the Jew first and then the Greek. Paul would share... uh, to the wise guys uh, in Athens, he would share, I think it's Athens, Acts 17, he would say, uh, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Man is at enmity with God. Man is separated from God. Man needs to be reconciled to God, and God begs through his church, be reconciled to God through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is only through him alone that man is reconciled. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, John fourteen six. We know from Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. It was his good pleasure to reconcile all things through him. But how did he do it? How is he doing it at this point? How was it done and how does that affect us now? Back to our passage. Verse 20, And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Now we'll talk about this all things in a minute. What does that mean? We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And look at this. Can't get around us through him again. You see, God has brought reconciliation through the person and work of his son. Our text says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Isn't that great? God says in Isaiah 48:22, there is no peace for the wicked. Now, they may have a temporal happiness when they get with their way or whatever it is, but there's no peace with God. There's no peace. 
If your sin has not been covered, if you have not been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, you have no peace with God. You are in a continual state of enmity. You need to be reconciled to God. Nothing you can do can satisfy God. But God has made, it's been done, peace through the blood of his cross. That speaks of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ bearing our sins in his body of the cross, shedding his blood and dying for our sins. That's what that's talking about. That is the means in which God reconciles the world to himself. It is through the blood of his cross. Isaiah 53, surely our griefs, verse 4, he himself bore, our sorrows here carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chasing, that's the spanking, that's the punishment for our well-being. Our shalom fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we may become the righteousness of God in him. It's because of what Jesus did, bearing our sins on his body cross, dying. He brought peace through the blood of his cross. You might remember what we saw earlier in Colossians. Verse 13 for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. First Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that died of sin and lived to righteousness. And what's the result? When we trust in Jesus Christ by faith, Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He brought peace He brought peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who brings true peace. And notice again, he says, it's through him. Through him. So our text speaks of the reconciliation of all things. That's interesting, right? And he says, and he reinforces that end of 20, I say whether things on earth or things in heaven, all things. This is kind of gets a little sticky here for a second. Some of you might be saying, How can all things be reconciled by the work of the cross if there are some people who reject Christ? How can that be? Certainly fallen angels are not redeemed who will spend eternity in hell prepared for the devil and his angels, right? Good question. Well, simply here we see Jesus' work on the cross brings creation into a right relationship with his creator. Now, Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying all will be saved. What do I mean? Sin has caused all creation to be out of joint, uh, to be out of order. Uh, man has fallen. Fallen angels are currently not subjecting themselves to the Creator, but they are rebelling. Fallen mankind is not subjecting itself to the Creator, but in, re- in rebellion. And yet, through the death and resurrection of Christ, brought about a restoration of the order in all creation, which has not been completely fulfilled yet. But it will be. What do I mean by that? Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, we can bow right now, willingly, having been reconciled through the gospel. They'll be reconciled in the context of having rejected what Jesus did in shedding his blood. They'll be reconciled in judgment because they rejected him, the opportunity for salvation. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And not only does Jesus' work bring all men under subjection, some willingly and, and, and gloriously and some in judgment, it also brings the fallen angelic world under subjection. Look a little farther in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 verse 13. So the cross, you're either going to stumble over Jesus or you're going to be saved by him. The cross reconciles everything. Reconciles everything. puts it all in right order. Now, God is very gracious. He isn't judging those who reject Jesus yet until they die. Until you die, don't reject him. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Colossians 2.13, And when you were dead in your transgressions in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. 
Amen, right? Having canceled out the certificate of debt containing of decrees against us, were hostile to us. You know, every little sin was being marked out, piling up. Everything you've done, if you haven't trusted Christ, is piling up. And the cross wipes that out. Wipes that out. It's canceled. It's canceled. Our sin debt is canceled. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Amen. When, notice this, this is what I want to point out. When he had disarmed the rulers and authority, he made public display over them, having triumphed over them through him. What Jesus did on the cross brought complete victory over the fallen angelic world and over Satan. Complete victory. What Jesus did, complete victory. And therefore, all things are reconciled in Jesus. Reconciled through how you receive him. You believe in him, you're reconciled through salvation. You reject him, you are reconciled through judgment. All things reconciled. And through him, and guess what? There's going to be peace in a sense, not peace in the heart, but there won't be a rebellion, an open rebellion with those in hell. They'll be paying for their penalties. They're not going to be fighting against God. They're going to be rebelling against him, marching around, you know, sharing their wickedness. They're going to be of subjection and punishment. But we will be in glory with the Lord. So then, the work of the cross has reconciled all things to God, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. If you're still in your sins, friend, you have no peace. No peace with God. And it is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that there's the offer of salvation that you might have peace. Be reconciled. Paul shares this in Acts 10. Acts 10.36 to Cornelius, the first Gentile converts. He says, the word which he sent through the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And he finishes his uh, his sermon here saying of all the prophets, verse 43, bear witness that through him, uh, his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. Amen. We saw this already, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. We know that he himself is our peace. He's our peace. So my question for you is, have you been reconciled to God? He has given believers, uh, we see it primarily pointing to uh, Paul and the apostles and his companions there, but he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. We have the word of reconciliation. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, right? That we become the righteousness of God. And it's Jesus died for our sins. That we might have righteousness. We might have his righteousness through faith. Okay, so Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord of the new creation, the church, because he, being God, took on human flesh and brought reconciliation to all things through his sacrifice on the cross. Because of these things, we see. Now notice, Paul takes this amazing discourse at this point and transitions to the person and work of Christ applied directly to Colossian believers. Notice that's what he does here, verse 21. Now notice all the yous here, okay? When I read through these verses, look at all the yous, okay? I'm not thinking about little lambs, I'm talking about uh, yous, right? All right. Um, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in, in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen. It's awesome. So here we see, first of all, their need for reconciliation. The Colossian pagan people's need for reconciliation. Although you were formerly alienated, that means separated, excluded. We see this word used um, in, in uh, Ephesians 4.17. Uh, speaking of non-believers, they are excluded from the life of God, alienated. They're separate from it. He says here, uh, they were alienated, obviously, from, from God. And then, we know it's because of sin. Sin brings a separation, right? We know that. It causes death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, this term, you were alienated, is in a perfect tense. What does that mean? You were alienated in the past at a point of time, and you have been alienated all the way up to now. 
You were, it happened, and now you are still alienated all the way up to this point, that point. But you were, but then they're going to see something. They were also hostile in mind. The term speaks of hatred. It's an attitude one would have for an enemy. And then we have the term engaged, or just phrase engaged in evil deeds. That's the outward manifestation of the heart, right? Things done apart from God are, are evil deeds, by the way, good or bad. They're done apart from God. Surely these Colossians did good before they were saved. Well, Scripture describes us as them as being engaged in evil deeds. Remember Titus, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. So back in our passage, verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, does this describe you? If you haven't come to faith in Jesus, it does. It does, no matter how good you think you are. In relationship to God, you are alienated, you are hostile in mind, you are engaged in evil deeds. That's from his perspective. If you haven't repented of your sin and called upon Jesus to save you, this describes you. It described me. Before I came to faith, it described each and every one of us before we came to faith. But notice our passage. Yet, what a wonderful conjunction here. Verse 22. He has now reconciled you, that's the Colossians, in his fleshly body through death. Praise God. Reconciled. He did the work. He restored the relationship. He did it through his fleshly body through death. You see, Jesus took on human flesh. God the Son took on human flesh. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And he went and bore our sins in his body on the cross. And he died for our sins. And because his bearing our sins and dying for our sins satisfied the Father, if we believe in Jesus, God is satisfied and we receive the righteousness of Jesus. And we are reconciled. The relationship is restored. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Praise the Lord. This is good news. This is good news. God has brought reconciliation through his son, Jesus. Wow. Wonderful, wonderful. And there are some of you that God might be convicting. He's breaking your heart. He's revealing your sin. Now is the time to repent. That means to turn from your sin to Jesus and believe in him. Lord Jesus, save me. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, he commands this, by the way, it's a command from God to, 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 to the people here, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. God commands you to do so. I pray you will obey him. So now, in the second half of verse 22, we have this glorious purpose of reconciliation. This is really great. It just gets better and better and better and better. Look at this. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We are going to be presented before the Lord. Now, if you don't know Christ, you're going to die in your sins. There's a point where he wants to die in the judgment. You will go before him in judgment. But we will be presented before him. And we'll see here, he died for us so that we would be presented holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That is just, I can't fathom that. I can't fathom that. It's so great. It's so great. The purpose we were reconciled, obviously, in this context here, was that we would be presented before him. Before him. Holy, blameless, beyond reproach. We were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, and on that day we'll be presented before him holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Wow. Now, Paul uses three words to describe the state of that day. This is in glory, by the way. This is when we're before the Lord. Okay? Now, if you died right now, uh, your body would go in the grave, and you would go in his presence. Uh, your spirit would leave the body, and you would be holy and blameless beyond reproach before him. Now, if he came, we would be changed in this moment. We would be, meet him in the sky. We'd be glorified, holy and blameless before him without or beyond reproach. Tremendous. He uses three words here. The first word, holy, at its core speaks of being separate or, or set apart. 
This term was applied to God when it's applied to him. It speaks of his absolute transcendence above his creation, being separate and distinct from it, being totally separated from sin. God is holy. He is righteous in him. There is no sin. He, and he does not sin. He is totally separate from evil and sin. He is holy. Yet the amazing thing is that when we trust in Jesus, we are set apart unto him. We are holy. We are saints in position. And as we walk in this earth, he is weeding out, sanctifying us. He's weeding out sin out of our lives, making us more like his son Jesus. We are to be holy because he is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. And folks, there will be that day when the Lord completes our salvation. When we are in his presence, we will be completely holy. Not just in position, not becoming more like Jesus, but we will be like him when we see him. We will be holy. Purpose of our salvation. And not only will we be presented holy, we'll be presented blameless. That's kind of cool. It's more than cool, by the way. The term blameless speaks of without defect, unblemished. It is a word to describe the offerings, the sacrifices that were unblemished. They're, 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 they're unblemished. There's an absence of defects. Oh, man, I don't have an absence of defects now. i got a ton of defects. But those defects will be gone. This body of death will be done away. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise the Lord. And then notice he says here, not only will we be holy and blameless before him, our text says, beyond reproach. Well, this Greek word translated beyond or above reproach, anakletos, is a combination of Greek words, which has a negation, ah, here, and then n, without, and then kletos, call. Well, what does that mean? The word meant basically being charged in court. Without a charge. Without a charge. Beyond reproach. There's no charges. Satan's the accuser of the red. He can charge all day long, but there are no valid charges. From God, there are no charges against us. Our charges were nailed to the cross. No charges. Without the negation, we see this in Romans 8.33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? We are without charge. Beyond, beyond reproach. We're without charge. Isn't that wonderful? Think of it. Formerly, we, think of it. We come into the courtroom. We were formerly alienated, hostile, mind engaged in evil deeds. We were guilty. And the question is, what are the charges? And the answer is none. None. No charges. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. Let's turn there, actually. Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.1, I'll read that and then we'll go up to 8.31. There is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, no condemning judgment for us now, but we will be uh, before him. Verse 31, speaking of the, in the context of our being glorified and all things working together for good unto his glory, right? Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up all for us, how will he also not with him freely give us all things? Who will what bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. No one can bring a charge. We will be before him chargeless. Chargeless, holy, blameless, without reproach. Wow. This was God's plan from the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. This is his plan from the beginning. We're on our way to a glorious eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, or 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the end of verse 7, our Lord Jesus, who shall confirm you to the end blameless. We're blameless because of Jesus. This is really great, by the way. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. 
You can't stand there on your own blameless. He makes us stand because of the Son Jesus, right? Amen. If this doesn't cause you to praise God, something is desperately wrong with you. Seriously. And this leads to verse 23. I'll read 22 up to 23. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you holy and blameless before him beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. There's going to be an evidence of reconciliation also. And evidence is that you continue on in the faith. You see, fakers don't continue. They bail out. True believers continue in the faith, as we're going to see. It's going to be an evidence. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now, you might read this and think, well, wait a second. If you continue, that sounds like you could lose your salvation. Well, even in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of the gospel, he says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. If you hold fast. Wait a second. How is this? Can someone lose their salvation? Absolutely not. You see, Jesus said very clearly in John 27, My sheep hear my voice. 10.27 And I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We receive the Spirit to dwell in us forever. If you're really saved, you can't lose your salvation. But an evidence of being really saved is continuing in the faith. That's what he says here. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established, this is what the Bible says, steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. This is the evidence you've been reconciled. It's the evidence. Only fakers fall away. True believers won't fall. We struggle. We have difficulties. We have doubts at times, but we don't fall away. We don't fall away. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 again. We see that only fakers fall away. Fakers fall away. Hebrews 10. And you can see this back um, in chapter 6 also. You can see it back there. The case uh, made that there are those who, who've heard it and tasted the good, the good, the good the truth. Uh, they've partaken of the Spirit in the sense they've partaken of the Word. And they've seen believers, yet they fall away, right? They're not saved. So Hebrews 10 here, verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back into destruction. True believers don't shrink back into destruction, the fakers do. But of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. True believers have faith to the end. Right? Now, if we start sending it up, God's going to spank us a little bit, get us back on track, right? Going to get us back focused on the Lord. Fakers fall away. True believers are not going to fall away. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, and he says here, here's the evidences. He says here, firmly established. That speaks of being founded. The word spoke of a foundation. And it's in a perfect tense. Having been firmly founded. You continue in the faith, found, founded, right? The second one is, is the term steadfast. It means settled in one position. This is in regards to the Lord and the faith in Jesus Christ, by the way. And then he says, indeed, if you continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, and then he says, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. The term not moved away spoke of shifting or moving away, or being led away. Not moved away. Of what? So he's saying, true believers concerning the faith have been founded, they're settled in one position, and they're not moved away from the hope of the gospel. What's the hope of the gospel? He said, which you've heard, which was proclaimed under in all creation under heaven, of which and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. We'll look at that next week, the minister part, so we'll see that next week, Lord willing. But here he says, which has, which has been proclaimed. Verse 6 of the chapter 1, which has come to you, the gospel kingdom, just as in all the world. The gospel had been proclaimed in the known world at that time, been proclaimed under heaven. It's the gospel. And what's the gospel? 
<coughs> the good news concerning Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the dead, it reveals that through him we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We have a hope laid up for us in heaven. You see, we keep hoping for what God has promised. If you're a true believer, you're not going to get moved away from that and not think it's true anymore. You're going to keep hoping in what's true. You're not going to get detoured, pulled away from that. You're going to stay founded. You're going to stay firmly established in the faith. If we do, and we will if we're true believers. We saw back in chapter 1, verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of faith, the gospel. You see, true hope is based on the person of Jesus Christ. He is our hope. He is the blessed hope. Uh, he is our hope. In him the Gentiles should hope. Uh, Romans 15:20. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter, according to his great mercy, has been caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not only do we hope in Jesus, we hope in what he has promised. If Jesus is for this life only, we're of all men to be pitied. We hope. We see in Titus chapter 3, verse 7, the hope of eternal life. Acts 23, 4, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. 1 John 3, 1 through 3, we hope that we will be like him when we see him as he is. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So then, if we're not moved away from that, if we continue in the faith, it's an evidence we have been reconciled. We've been reconciled. Do you have true hope? Are you struggling in that? Get your eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. Let, your, let his word fill your hearts. Now, there might be some of you listening today who have no true hope, and I declare to you the gospel. You trust in Jesus Christ, you'll be forgiven of sins, you'll be given an eternal hope, you'll inherit eternal life, you'll be with him forever. So then, he says here, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed under all creation, in under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So do you have an accurate view of who Jesus is? He's the God who reconciles. He is reconciling all things to himself, but right now he's reconciling the opportunity to be reconciled to him through forgiveness of sins, to have peace with God, to have peace with God. Some of you are at enmity with God. And he is offering you salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What are the implications for us, believers, we who were alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, who have now been reconciled? Well, we've been reconciled to God. We're no longer separated from him. We can boldly come before his throne we can walk with him, we can talk with him, we can abide in him, we have a relationship with the living God, and we will be presented holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. These truths of our great salvation should cause us to see our trials differently. Peter says it this way, In this you greatly rejoice, speaking of the salvation. Even though for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, but now believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. To bring great joy. Great joy. Let's pray. Father, so wonderful. You are so good, so gracious, so kind that you would send your Son and that he would willingly come and that it is through him we have reconciliation with you. You reconciled us here who have believed. We thank you so much. 
and you reconciled us in order to present us holy, blameless, beyond reproach, Lord. We, we, we look forward to that day when these truths are fulfilled. Lord, help us to put on the form of God, to see things rightly in the midst of this sinful day, Lord God, when sin is all around us and we can become discouraged. Help us keep our eyes on you and on your Son, Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you that they would be reconciled to you. They would believe in your Son, Jesus. Again, Lord, we praise you and thank you for your Son. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.